Uh, we have some people who were forced to do it, um, who are now big champions and proponents of using the instructional design process. And they have found that, you know, the, the online pieces can very easily translate into your traditional and our hybrid courses. And they've started seeing those who have done it for a longer period of time um, build really strong relationships with these instructional designers where they keep coming back and they're like, you know, I was in one session and they said that, that they felt really accomplished when their faculty said, that's my instructional designer. Yes. You know, because it was like, you know, that, that, that they felt like that was a big badge of achievement because now they, they had the faculty liking them and, and relying on them and having such a great partnership with them that they now were claiming them. Um, so I, I... Welcome to this episode of Instruction by Design, your podcast to the art of teaching. This format's gonna be a little different than normal. We are at the uh, OLC, the Online Consortium Annual Innovate Conference. And by we, I mean myself, Stephen Crawford. Celia Kutraitiwa. Tracy Mullen-Cosker. And Tracy, what institution are you from? I'm with the University of New Hampshire. And in what role? I'm actually the Associate Director of UNH Online, the newly established online arm of the University of New Hampshire. Well, welcome and thank you for joining us uh, for this episode. We're recording in the Innovation Lab, which is part of the space for the conference, and I was fortunate to co-chair, so we were able to kind of get the space here after the keynote address. The big thing I want to ask is, what are some of the cool things that you have seen so far and have enjoyed at this conference that you think faculty should know sooner rather than later? I um, have been attending a lot of sessions on faculty development, and um, the Big talk around that is how do we best serve as instructional designers faculty? So, you know, listeners out there, if you want to tweet us and let us know as faculty how you think we can better serve you, that would be great um, because that has been a big topic around here. And, um, you know, a lot of different ideas thrown out there as to how, of course, there's always incentives. My biggest question is, you know, when you can't be incentivized, how can we best serve you? Yeah, that's really interesting. That's uh, a lot of what I've been doing here, being new to the University of New Hampshire. I just started there about a year, 18 months ago now. Um, I'm really trying to, struggling with trying to figure out how to reach the faculty and bring some of those faculty on board with online learning. Um, and we have a great team of instructional designers, but they're, I think, a little underutilized at this time. Um, you know, University of New Hampshire is a, you know, top 50 Lansy Space Grant Institution um, with a lot of tradition behind it. So branching into to the online world has been a little bit difficult for them. Um, there are two things that I have, two kind of sessions that I've attended that have been really helpful. Um, one was on using the um, change management model, model process to help faculty adoption of online learning. And what I really liked was that they were looking at a concerns-based approach. Um, this was something that uh, Florida University had uh, done. And it gave me some really practical applications that would allow me to reach out to faculty. And I'd just be interested to find out if, if faculty had the same perception as administration to how well that would work. Um, one of the big concepts that they presented was the idea of 
um, rather than having a one-size-fits-all model for um, online instruction for faculty, they developed a model that kind of met the faculty member where they were. So some faculty members had a lot of online experience already, or they came from an online institution before, and they were forcing them to go into this intro to online class, and they were kind of like, this is not really relevant to me. I've done this for 10 years. And then he, they had other faculty members who were very traditional and were very scared. And they'd throw them into this online course, and they weren't even ready to use their LMS yet because they'd been doing, you know, traditional classroom teaching. So um, I'd be interested to hear from faculty if, if they think that would be a good approach, if they would embrace that type of approach uh, rather than kind of a, a standard uh, uh, type of class that everyone has to go through. You know, Celia, you had told me earlier this afternoon that you attended a session on both, oh, I think it was called inboarding uh, faculty and instructional designers to work together. Can you talk about that a little bit more? Um, well, this session was created by the University of Arizona. Um, so I won't say more than that in this podcast, uh, <laughs> since and, and, we are ASU. It, but, but Angela Gunder uh, was yes. part of that. She's a good <laughs> friend of ours. It was a great session. I give them that. <laughs> um, but they have developed an online course that is available to both faculty and instructional designers. So they've built an online course that allows their instructional designers and their faculty to get used to the model of implementation that they would like. It gives them a starting point for when they need to do some face-to-face -face meetups with instructional designers, but it also gives the instructional designers a chance to see what it is they're expecting of their faculty. So I thought that was an interesting model because I'm sure, you know, with their program growing online, they are wanting to make sure that both faculty and instructional designers are on the same page as to what they are looking for and what they are wanting from each of their courses. You know, and that's an interesting point that you bring up, that a lot of this has been for helping online faculty. And I'm going to guess a lot of that is because many of these faculty members may not live in the same state as their institution. Um, I know in your case with Southern New Hampshire being such a small state, I'm going to guess that a lot of the faculty live outside of New Hampshire. Um, but also one of the things that happens that I'm fighting, the, the battle I'm fighting is we're not Southern New Hampshire, we're University of New Hampshire. So there is a little bit of a difference. But yes, we still have faculty in our programs that are located outside the state of New Hampshire. And, and I know we're seeing the same thing at ASU. And, and, and since most of the faculty we work with are working with face-to-face -face and, and hybrid slash blended courses. You know, it kind of lends itself to a conversation of how do we prepare all faculty, not just online faculty. And, and one of the things I've been involved in here with the Innovation Lab has been about design thinking, um, asking the questions, how can we better do, and then fill in the blank. And maybe that's the question that I think... I'm still looking for an answer for, and part of it, we're not going to get that answer here. If we ask the question, how can we better assist faculty for, to prepare to teach, regardless of whatever modality it is, there's a lot of questions that we cannot answer here today. We have to reach out to our faculty and say, all right, what, and as you identified earlier, if you've got experience, what do you not need to hear again? Um, and also think about the fact that a lot of times 
they're, the time span is so short, but what do faculty want? What do they need? And, and I think that's probably one of the areas we probably should look at more as we come home from conferences like that, like this one, because we think about these great ideas, but how do we implement them? So that's one of the things that kind of comes across my mind a bit. A little plug on the emerging session that I gave this morning on metacognitive test-taking strategies and how are we preparing students for professional certification exams. I had some great conversations this morning with some faculty that came in to do some talking with me. And we were talking about how are we preparing our students to move from paper-based exams to computer-based exam. And the reason I bring this up is as an instructional designer working in the College of Nursing and Health Innovation, the nursing students are ultimately going to be taking the NCLEX certification exam, which is a computer adaptive test. Now, I've been with ASU for two and a half years, and when I first started was when we had faculty coming in and asking, how do we prepare our students for this? Which then took me back to my K-12 experience of working with students on how to move from test taking paper-based skills to computer-based skills because of the Great old Common Core. Um, <laughs> common Core, gotta love it. But to be able to transfer and make that connection with higher ed brought on some really great conversations this morning with the faculty who are working on that with their own students as well. And so it was great to see not only did I talk to some nursing faculty, but I also talked to some others from um, hospitality and management who are just trying to get their faculty ready for the GRE and GMAT uh, examinations. So, so yeah, I, I thought that was interesting because I was able to catch the tail end of that and unfortunately didn't get to, to participate in seeing the conversations you were involved in. But I think that's a really interesting point that we're out there, and a lot of us are out there doing a lot of similar things, and we're coming up eventually with similar answers. We may be a little ahead in some areas, a little behind in others, but that's, the, I think, the fun part about conferences like this is sharing the ideas and seeing where we stand. And I, I for one, am really excited to see what happens next with how we implement computer-based testing. Yeah, that's great. We, we haven't done a lot of computer-based testing at University of New Hampshire yet, uh, not that I'm fully aware of. Um, but I do, it's one of my kind of badges of, of championship here is uh, I see my children who are, you know, they're 10, one's 10, the others are 19, and I see how they're learning now. And it constantly challenges me to think, my 10-year-old's never going to sit through, or I, I can't imagine him sitting through a two-hour lecture traditional class. Um, you know, his undergrad, his uh, elementary experience has been full of gamification and um, rich experiences. He's got uh, teachers who are teaching the traditional um, curriculum, and then they're going and doing a, an experience in York, uh, Maine, and they're actually experiencing what they're learning. Um, and so I, I'm really interested to see how that evolves in the test-taking module. It's kind of how, uh, I, I believe it was our keynote speaker today who mentioned or, 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 uh, the, the paper-based test and how do we move from what's going to be the next step in this, this kind of a traditional education model of teach, learn, repeat, test, right? And, and how are we going to translate that experiential piece into that, or how are we going to incorporate that into um, uh, the future of education? 
I'm glad you brought up John Cow. Uh, we just came from his keynote speaker, uh, keynote speech that he just gave us. Um, he is the CEO for EdgeMaker and uh, really interesting points of view on innovation, the history of innovation. He being a former Harvard business professor and teaching on what eventually is now known as the concept of innovation and everything. And, and here we are sitting in the middle of the innovation lab here at the conference. Um, you know, I know from my experience has been for the conference has been limited to this space for the most part, which has fortunately hosted a number of sessions. And, you know, I'm sitting over here looking at our game design area. We have some uh, some really great people from Oklahoma State University who have brought a number of things. We think about gamification. We've had a couple of sessions here about it. Um, the folks that we have here in the lab with their demonstration, they're showing a open uh, educational resource, an open source project called Twine that can be used for creating uh, games. And they've even done one for faculty development, which I thought was quite interesting and I'm trying to learn some more about still. Hmm. Um, but they have, they had the Nintendo Switch. And if you've not had a chance to see this, come by, come by here tomorrow morning and ask to see the, the cow milking um, application they have on there. And you think about it, for Oklahoma State, milking cows makes plenty of sense, but they're sitting here figuring out how to do certain things. But the, the number of card games, the number of dilemmas, and we, we had a session last night, a game jam, where different groups of people were creating games on the fly and that they could try out to use somewhere else by using a, a, a gaming framework. And I think, and this goes back to what I was going to say about about um, our keynote speaker with John, is that it really is about imagining what we can do, and then figuring out a way to do it. And that's just one of the things I think a conference like this kind of gives us a framework for. And when we get back, we got to remember not everything. All the because I sit here and I see all the vendors on the other side of the curtains who want to sell us all these products and do things for us. But there's a lot of things that we can do ourselves. <laughs> Yeah, I, I think that tying, uh, I think that one of my takeaways is better using and engaging the faculty in our innovation. Um, I think sometimes, uh, because I have more of the administrative perspective, that uh, we forget, or I forget, that we have this amazing resource at our institutions of these faculty members who have dedicated their lives to their area of subject matter expertise. And if we could just tap into some of that and, and use some of that to leverage the technologies or to leverage uh, the things that, that we think could kind of make our courses more enriching, that could make uh, the learning experiences more engaging for the students, I think that's more of a win-win. I think sometimes faculty are resistant to technologies or they, they seem to be resistant to technologies because they're forced on them sometimes. <laughs> it's like, here's a new learning management system. Here's this new test system. Here's this new way to insert your grades. And so, so they become a little resistant because it's always forced on them. I think that um, for me, I, I really want to better engage the faculty in determining uh, the future of the online uh, arm of UNH and, and how we can bring that to the undergraduate population as well. I mean, there's a lot of students who are in that traditional residential experience, but they're also looking for other ways and more enriching experiences than that traditional lecture class. Yes, that's a question that I have of all faculty um, when thinking about faculty development and bringing in new tools and technologies is how do we get them excited without, you know, throwing all these pieces at them, um, but how, how do we get them excited? You know, what is it that's going to make them kind of 
um, not switch, but just kind of get that light bulb on that says, yes, I want to learn that new tool. That is going to be the next tool that I implement in my classroom. When, you know, they're um, bombarded with all these other tasks that they have to get through. And I think that's an issue across education as a whole. But in talking with faculty and trying to get them to see the, the students of today are not going to be the students of tomorrow. And, but how do you get that message across? I, I think an interesting point to remember is computer-based testing was not our idea. It was a faculty member's idea. And, and that one faculty member said, there's got to be a better way to do something. Can you help? Can you help me find a way to do that? or I want to try X. And I think that's one of the things that we really need to cultivate is a culture of creativity within both, not just our teams of people who work with faculty, but faculty as well. We need to create, you know, cultivate that culture so that they are going, you know, I wonder if I could. I was talking to somebody who used to be with ASU. She's now at the uh, University of Washington at Tacoma. And, and Colleen Carmine started her work on using text messages to nudge first-year students to remind them of certain deadlines to kind of, and then increase a lot of success rates. So, you know, here, oh, your, your financial aid deadline is approaching. And, and so she's, she won a best practice award for that work that she's now continued at the University of Washington at Tacoma. But she did that with a partner of a faculty member at ASU initially and then in her role at Tacoma. So again, a lot of it has to do with faculty. Mm-hmm. A lot of, you know, faculty... This is a faculty-driven culture. It's faculty governance, and and that must be respected. And we, I think it's a fantastic vehicle mm-hmm. because whenever there are problems and people are ready to go, I'm ready for a better way, that's when we need to be ready to, to work. Yeah. Uh, the University of Oklahoma, I, I, I uh, talking about sessions that we attended that we learned something from, um, they did a research study recently that was talking about the sense of community and how that increased both retention within students taking subsequent courses um, as well as student satisfaction and learning. Um, And in order to do it, they had to make a big ask of the faculty because they knew that by embedding this into their curriculum, so a lot of times uh, people will try to create that sense of community outside the classroom, but I found it very interesting that they took an approach of looking at how it impacted it if they created that sense of community inside the classroom. So they asked some faculty members who would be willing to redesign their course and incorporate these community building exercises and or community building um, pieces in support of their curricula to engage the students a little bit differently and a little bit more dynamically. And uh, what I really liked was that they took a traditional research model um, and and kind of took that approach, which I think helped engage the faculty a little bit more. And they had their null hypothesis and then their other hypothesis. And then they were able to, through these four courses, determine that 100% of the students who experienced this new redesigned course versus the old course um, actually were retained and actually registered for subsequent courses, and they actually got better grades as a result. So um, again, very small uh, population. I think they had about 50 to 60 students, but I was very interested in how uh, collaborative that had to be, especially because it did ask 
you know, in order for the faculty to be more engaged, it takes a little more time to do those types of things. They had to go outside their traditional curriculum and outside what they were already comfortable with and kind of explore to see if this really did have an impact on the student's success. So I'll be interested to kind of follow what they're doing next and, and how that kind of translates and if they get more faculty on board, because that's what I'd really like to see. You know, I think one of the things that we don't do enough of is that, and, and I, I come from the background of participatory uh, action research, and let me try that again. Part, <laughs> I come from a background of participatory action research, and I think it's really important to measure the impact of how we, of how we affect students. Um, I think a lot of times we, we assume there are problems, and, and a lot of times we can get that data and the evidence to support that there is an issue based off of grades. Um, the, the DFW rate is obviously the easy one to look at. Um, but we also don't always look to go, did it make a difference? And that's what I like about a conference like this one is that we do see people bringing pieces to the table going, this is what we did. Here's the data to support the, that this is a good idea that you should try consider doing as well. It's, it's, it ties in again to the keynote speaker where he was, one thing that he said that really struck me was that um, innovation is practice and not a wish. And I think sometimes we don't necessarily embrace the practice. I think I would imagine uh, faculty feel a lot of pressure to deliver on those end-of-course surveys. They feel a lot of pressure to uh, have student success metrics and et cetera that, that a failure can sometimes be considered a bad thing. And um, one of the things that really struck me was reminding yourself that when you fail, that's when you learn, and that's how you you practice. You practice to become better. Um, and I, I think sometimes the the model that we have right now for our faculty doesn't allow them points of failure as much as I think it could. Um, and I think that that sometimes prevents some of the innovative thoughts going forward because they're like, well, that might risk my tenure, or that might risk you know me getting you know a course overload or something of that nature. And so um, I, I'm wondering what we, uh, from my perspective on the administrative side, what we can do to just better prepare the faculty and, and to allow them uh, to make those, you know, to, to take those stabs in the dark and say, hey, I have this idea and I think it might work. It might not, but I think it might work. Um, I don't know that they're as encouraged to do that sometimes in, in the way things are going nowadays. So does your institution have a team of instructional designers to provide support? We do. We have a team of five instructional designers. Um, we work on a consultative model right now, not a production model. So uh, faculty, anyone who wants to go and put a course online, they are required to work with our instructional design team. Highly encouraged, I guess I should say, not required. <laughs> if they want to put a full program online, then they are required. We do have an incentive program that incentivizes them to do so. So that's why we really try to kind of say, this is a different pedagogy, so you really need to kind of be prepared for that. Um, but uh, we've been doing it for about two and a half years now. Uh, we have some people who were forced to do it, um, who are now big champions and proponents of using the instructional design process. And they have found that you know, the, the online pieces can very easily translate into your traditional and our hybrid courses. And they've started seeing those who have done it for a longer period of time um, build really strong relationships with these instructional designers where they keep coming back and they're like, you know, I was in one session and they said that 
that they felt really accomplished when their faculty said, that's my instructional designer. Yes. You know, because it was like, you know, that, that, that they felt like that was a big badge of achievement because now they, they had the faculty liking them and, and relying on them and having such a great partnership with them that they now were claiming them. Um, so I, I think that that's something that we're working on at University of New Hampshire is to build those relationships and to really engage the faculty. Yes, I think that that's been a common theme amongst the um, instructional designers that I've talked to around here at the conference has been, you know, I got my fat when I got my faculty's trust, that's when I became the most effective. And once I built that relationship, they work together all the time. Mm -hmm. So I find that, um, you know, gaining the faculty trust for an ID is something that's very important. And that, you know, that's the same um same thing for me, coming in new as an ID a couple years ago, I had to gain that trust. And so, yeah, and because we use that same consultative model as well. <laughs> We're not a production shop. Um, we are a, a highly valued option, I guess is a way to phrase it. And, and, and we do work hard to co-create. Uh, we want to partner with faculty. And, and sometimes we have ideas that we can shop to faculty and say, what do you think about this? Sometimes it's the other way around where the faculty are bringing things to us. Um, but more often than not, we're kind of waiting for something to occur that the faculty member comes to us as opposed to the administration requiring our participation. Um, I I don't know if we've ever been required. Um, I think in most cases, at worst, it was highly suggested. But we are pretty much a, a consultative type of model. And uh, it's one that I do enjoy because I, ha I have worked in the production side. And, and while you can still do some really great things in the environment, sometimes they're, 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 I would just say there's different barriers. Uh, I'm not going to say it's easier or harder. They're just different barriers because of that. And, um, and I know I highly value the work we do with our faculty and and I know from the past that from comments we've had over history that that the faculty highly value our ability to to work with them and do things. Do you think that your listeners would have any kind of suggestions on how to better build that trust? You know, I think that trust is one of those things that takes a long time to really establish and develop. And I'm just wondering from their perspective, what would make them feel more comfortable? Um, do, do you have any kind of ideas or insights on that from your experience? Um, well, uh, first on the Twitter side, um, any faculty who want to tweet us any insights on that, uh, you can tweet us at at IBD underscore podcast <laughs> for instruction by design. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I'm glad you did that because we do want to hear some feedback. My initial thoughts and history from, from my experience is that, so all right, so I'm going to go with some of the background I have on building trust with faculty. And a lot of it is just being, being there and being respect, you know, respecting the faculty governance process. Um, I have a high amount of respect for that process. I really like working with faculty to work within those guidelines. I, I've seen other units where the administration says, this is your syllabus template, this is your course shell template, this is how we're going to do things. Whereas my approach has been to work with faculty, gain as much evidence as possible that this is a good idea, that we're covering all the bases, that we're meeting all the institutional needs, all the accreditation needs, college needs, et cetera, and then run it through the curriculum committee. Because all because a group of us had a, a good idea doesn't mean it's 
the the best or the better idea currently on the table. And by having some more faculty input and bringing that through the process, I think is 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 one way to do that. When I look at instructional designers at other institutions and other organizations where I see um, a breakdown in relationships, it's often because of the adversarial positions that they have, they have become part of. Um, I'll add one of the things that I got asked a lot from faculty when I first started was, do you teach or have you taught? And I think that was a big uh, question for them in to gain trust from me. And so, um, you know, my background is education, so I could always say, yes, I have taught. And that helped probably the most in gaining their trust. Um, but once they would actually sit and work with me and, you know, see how easy it was to kind of collaborate and talk together and just bounce ideas off of each other to build some of these courses, then that really, really pushed them into into coming, you know, over to my desk all the time. I mean, we have people who are faculty who come in just randomly just to say, hey, you know, I, I um, have a question on this. Do you know how I can fix this? to make it better or I have faculty who come in and say hey I I want to do this project and I want to try out these tools um, do you think this will work or how can I make this the most effective and so you know getting to get to that point of having those conversations has I mean it it's great I, I would add one more item and that is be evidence-based I think a lot of people approach education as an art form and in reality, we should approach it as a science. Um, there's evidence out there to support the decisions we make, and when there isn't any sci uh, science or evidence to support those decisions, we should seek other fields and then test to see how that's working in other places. Um, you know, for an example, I have a friend who was looking at active learning in a doc in a uh, medical doctor in a medical school situation, and there's nothing on it. There's no evidence showing anybody using active learning, though it's talked about quite a bit. So she went to the literature, found a lot of K-12 and undergraduate information, and said, okay, here's what they're doing. Let's go get some evidence and see what difference it makes. And she found some very interesting findings um, on which techniques seem to work better in her context versus others. And, and I think that's what's nice about a conference like this one as we start to wrap things up. You know, I think about the evidence that we're seeing people bring to the table. And so my final question for you guys before we wrap up is, what have you found to be so far to be the one most interesting thing that you kind of want to go try out if you had, you know, tomorrow if you could, when you get back home? Uh, what was, what is something that if, if you had a faculty member or a course where that matched up, you said, I want to do that. Is there anything that comes to mind on that topic yet? Well, I did attend a session, and I actually, one of our instructional designers is here as well. We both wound up being at the same uh, session, so I was very excited about that, that we were both thinking along the same lines, and it was about the use of Google Cardboard. Ah, yes. And uh, uh, using, Penn State was doing, a, they're doing a research study. Um, they're, you know, it's, it's a great new tool, and it's really cool, and it's fun, and we all got to take our cell phones and put it in the little glasses and, and look around the classroom, and it was really great. But their, their, their hypothesis is, is that, yeah, it's great, but does it actually serve a learning 
mechanism? Does it actually do something to improve the learning experience? And um, uh, one of the things that uh, they have done is they've they've realized that it is very helpful in some of their uh, educational classes where they are talking about the setup of the classroom and they're talking about how you can change the classroom. And so rather than seeing a one-dimensional PowerPoint of, you know, change the desks and do this, et cetera, they're able to now visually show them by changing these desks, now the windows on this side are not a distraction for these students. Now you can pull focus this way and it brings the students into a much more engaging and interactive experience of feeling that versus actually just looking at a PowerPoint or a slide or some kind of, you know, blueprint for a classroom. And uh, Ken and I uh, both kind of looked at each other and were like, wow, this would be really neat. We could see where this might be applicable. And we were asking each other, maybe our, our, our analytics program and just just kind of coming up with some ideas on how we might be able to incorporate it or at least just start experimenting with it. Um, particularly, we know that our, our um, uh, audiovisual area has some of the Google Cardboard, but they're not really doing anything with it. So again, it's these resources that are there and available. And, and we both started brainstorming a little bit on who might be a good faculty member to work with us on this and try this out. Um, so uh, he and I are very excited about it. Now we just have to find a <laughs> faculty member to get just as excited about it. So that is definitely one of the things that I can see uh, evolving. I'm not sure it's more than a cool tool yet, but I think the more that we involve the faculty, I think they're going to help us and tell us how it can be more than a cool tool, right? Another technology. I think for me, um, my main focus in the sessions that I have attended, that my common theme that I found myself um, looking for were faculty development um, sessions. And so one of the first ones that I attended was the California State University um, Channel Islands team who talked about how they have one member of their team who does not live in the same state. So how they work with her um, and keep her on the team and how they collaborate virtually. But they also then move that over to faculty development as well to reach more faculty um, for trainings and workshops. And so they use, you know, tools like Zoom and Slack and other types of things. Um, but they, they've, been able to make their faculty development more uh, or um, available to a wider audi audience of faculty through those tools. So that's probably my big one, um, takeaway. So the one I'll bring to the table is improv. One of the things that we've done here in the lab is we're running a whose design is it anyway type of challenge. And we've been using improv comedy, blues music. And the best part is our blues musician is a community college faculty member himself. And so he's talked about how you work together as a team, how you adjust, how you communicate, using improv for leadership. Um, and, and that's something I think is really important. Um, we've, used, we've done some really interesting sketches with participants and with the, uh, the lab staff themselves to, to take educational technology items and talk about how we might approach a problem or how we've addressed a problem or sometimes just blow off a little steam and talk about how we've had some problems in other courses is like worst discussion prompts ever and things like that. <laughs> it's just, it's, it's been a lot of fun. And I think that's something that is, is really important is that to recognize that we can build plants, we can build a lot of plans and we can implement those plants. And sometimes we, we might actually follow the plan 
perfectly, but probably not. And so we need to improvise as we move along. But we just kind of go from there and just taking what's given to us and moving on, again, using the concept of yes and. That is the number one rule of improv from a theater undergrad major. (laughs) You never say no. Yes, let's do it. (laughs) So with that, I want to go ahead and thank Tracy very much for joining us. Absolutely. And uh, Celia, thank you for joining us. And we're going to wrap up here. We have another half day left in the conference and then we'll be heading home. And looking forward to bringing some of these new ideas uh, back to our our home institutions and and making things happen. So this is Stephen Crawford uh, signing off on the Instruction by Design, your podcast to the art of teaching uh, here at the OLC Innovate Conference. You can reach us on Twitter at IBD underscore podcast. That is IBD as an instruction by design underscore podcast. Or you can email us at instructionbydesign at asu.edu. To find previous episodes, please visit our website at links.asu.edu slash IBD underscore podcast. This podcast was produced by Arizona State University's College of Nursing and Health Innovation. And then we'll get room tone. Yay! (laughs) All right, let's get room tone. Silent hearing him all the whole time. I, I was like, the mm-hmm. poor sound designer is going to hate that. <laughs> oh, we get buses going by our window at some times. <laughs>